Well, good morning. It's good to see each of you here. I hope that you've had a very blessed week. And um, that in that week, you had the opportunity to be blessed by being with friends and with family, but also to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we come to this particular Sunday after Christmas, we're kind of a, in a social lull between New Year's and Christmas. It's a great opportunity that you and I have to think about not only our past year, but the year that's coming. And it's the turning point like this that happens every year that gives us an opportunity to pause and back up. And I would encourage you to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what are the things I need to learn from this past year? What are the things that you have for me in this new year? A time to catch our breath spiritually. And so this morning, I want to call your attention to what I think is the single greatest activity that you could commit yourself to or recommit yourself to in the coming year. And so the title of this morning's message is Praying Like Jesus. Praying Like Jesus. And we're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture. Both of those were read for us by Sam and Jill. One are, you'll find in Luke chapter 11, the verses there I'll be referring to. And then the other is a few chapters later in Luke chapter 18. And you may just want to put a bookmark there and be able to flip back and forth between the two. Luke 11 and Luke 18. I don't know what your prayer life is like. What your experience of God is like. But I find that sometimes we grow easily tired of praying because of our approach to God. And the way that we think about Him. I think some of us approach prayer kind of like Aladdin's lamp, where if I do the right thing, say the right thing, and play by the rules, he's going to answer my prayer in the way that a genie grants wishes. And that if God doesn't grant my request, then he's not a very good genie, and I've suddenly lost interest in prayer. And I'm going to move on. And I may still come to church, and I may still be involved, but this prayer thing, I just haven't figured it out. I haven't cracked it. And it's because of the way we approach God and we think about prayer. I want to stir your heart today on this subject of prayer. Billy Graham once said, Heaven is full of answers to prayers for which no one ever bothered to ask. Heaven full of answers to prayer that no one has ever asked. <clears throat> the implication that we see even in this text that was read, when you read the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11 and in Matthew 7, where he says to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he says this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he specifically teaches us to pray that the way God rules in heaven and the way he rules his heaven is perfect. And there is none of the heartache and difficulty and hurt and pain and suffering in heaven that there is here. And so when he teaches us to pray like that, he's asking, he's teaching us to ask God 
to come into our circumstances and rule on earth the way that he rules in heaven. To let him come into our needs. But the implication of him teaching us to pray like that is that if I do not ask him to come, the assumption is is that he will not come. He will not enter into my circumstances. He will not act. He will not show up if I don't ask and don't pray. Jesus told Peter this promise. You may just want to jot it down the margin. He said this in Matthew 16, 18. He said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so he describes the church this way. The church is founded on the confession that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one and the Messiah. And he says that when my church is properly related to me, then I'm building it. And when I'm building my church, and when my church is properly related to me, and I'm the head, and the church is my body, and I can directly and intimately communicate to every member of the body the way that I want to as I build my church, when the church is like that, and I'm building the church, then the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so it's describing the church not in a defensive posture, but in an offensive one. And yet, all around me, it seems the gates are still standing. And we live in a nation and we live in a time and a place where it seems the church is in defensive mode and fortress mode and not anywhere thinking or close to an offensive posture. We give offense, but not necessarily moving forward. We live in a a city, we live in a county, we live in a state where three-fourths of the people, and maybe even four today, are never in church on Sunday. And it's not about church attendance, it's about exposure to the gospel and fellowship with other believers and a life in Christ that is real. Three-fourths of our state. We're the Bible Belt, supposedly. The Delta population is on our doorstep. And we have all around us people who are dying generation after generation without Christ. Because though no particular church is saying, that neighborhood, we're going to take the gospel to them. That community, we're going to take the gospel to them. And it's been happening here generationally. And those generations are oppressed and lied to by the devil, and when he has opportunity, he will kill them and murder them and cause suffering in their life. We have friends and family that need to know Jesus. You say, Pastor, I've invited them to church. They say no. I try to talk to them about Christ, and they say talk to the hand. I go to their house, and I try to talk to them about the Lord, and they close the door. They don't want me to talk to them about Jesus, but there's nothing that keeps you from talking to Jesus about them. They can't stop that. And when you and I begin to understand what he has called us to when we talk about prayer, we begin to envision a church that's moving forward and outward and gates of hell that can't stop the forward movement of that church, and we begin to see the gates fall in 
place and house and community and people that we've been praying for for years, the gates begin to come down. We're looking at these two passages today, and I want you to see how both of them open up. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it, it says that Jesus was praying in a certain place, and this was his routine. He did this routinely. In Luke 5, 16, it says, but Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. So this was his habit. This was his routine. He would get away by himself often long before the sun came up, and he would be there alone with his father in prayer, and they knew that. In Luke 11, 1, they knew that. He was in a certain place. And when he was through praying, that's when one of the disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. We want to pray like you pray. Because they had made a connection between Jesus' prayer life and his daily life. That wherever he went, lives were changed. People were affected. People were impacted. And they saw this day in and day out. And they wanted to be able to go to the Father. And then they wanted to see the Father use them in great power to change lives. Don't you? Don't you? I do. I do. God made you and me to do specific things in our generation to impact our age, the people that are around us and alive today. He made you and me for this time and this day and this world at this moment. In Ephesians 2.10, one of the verses that God used to bring me to himself at, at, uh, it was Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. But it was verse 10 that later I came to understand, where it says, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You were made for good works. Now that's not good in the sense of just moral excellence. You are made for good works. What's a good work? A good work is something that you do that is right in the center, right in the middle of the will of God. That's a good work. Something God has for you, no one else, and he's made you for those things, those actions, for this day and this time and this place. And you say, well, how do I discover what those things are? The same way Jesus did. He got away regularly. Often, every day, the bigger the crowds grew, the more he got off by himself. And he worshiped his father. He talked to his father. He listened as his father spoke to him. And it is hard work. It's not easy to live that way. It's not easy to put yourself constantly in a position where you're talking to him and listening and paying attention. So many other things distract you and me. That's why we need to look at Luke 18 also. It's very easy for you and I to grow discouraged and to quit. And that's why we need to see the opening of Luke 18, because he teaches on prayer something else here that we also need to know. In Luke 18, verse 1, here's what it says. Now he was telling them a parable to show that all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And so the story he's going to tell in Luke 18, which is very similar to the one we're going to look at in Luke 11, he prefaces it by saying, 
This story, the purpose of this story is to help them know that they ought to pray at all times and not lose heart. What does it mean to lose heart? It means to give up. It's not talking about your physical heart. It means to give up, to lose one's motivation, to give up on a desirable pattern of conduct or activity, to lose enthusiasm, to be discouraged. Pray always, he says, and don't lose heart. Now, immediately that tells me a couple things. One, I can lose heart. If Jesus said don't lose heart, it's because I can lose heart. I can become so discouraged in my relationship with God and the world that I live in and my circumstances that I quit praying. It also tells me that there must be a way to not lose heart. If he says don't lose heart, it means there's a way for me not to lose heart. There's a way to stay motivated. There's a way to sustain your walk with God, your prayer life, through all of each day throughout 2015. There's a way to pray and not lose heart. That's what I want you to see today. Now, Luke 11, in the first part, he tells us what to pray. It's the Lord's Prayer, and we're not looking at that today, although I'm referring to it. And the Lord's Prayer may be very familiar to you. It ought to be. Our Father who art in heaven, he's telling you what to pray. But in the verses that we're looking at today, in verses 5 through 13, he's telling us how to pray. Teach us how to pray, they said. Well, he tells them, here's what to pray, and now I'm showing you, disciples, he says, how to pray, how to approach the Father, how to approach God. And I think if you see this, and you get this, it will sustain your prayer life. How many of you have bad days as well as good days? It is unanimous. I heard a groan even. There are good days and bad days. This teaching of Jesus is designed to help you and me even pray consistently through the worst of days. Through the worst of days. When you don't feel like it, when you don't know what to say, there's a way to approach the Father that sustains your prayer life. Three things. First, Jesus teaches us to pray shamelessly. He wants us to pray shamelessly. Now, what we read earlier, I want want to focus on verse 8. Verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. In Luke 11, the story is being told of a man who has a late arriving guest. Any of you have a late arriving guest this week? I did. I had one that didn't get in until, what time was that, 3.30 he got in? Late arriving guest. This one came a little earlier than that. It says he came at midnight. And this literally was the middle of the night. You know, back then they didn't have electric lights like you and I do. And so it got dark. And in the middle of the dark hours was when this friend showed up. And if you know anything about the Middle East, hospitality is extremely important and being able to do it properly. And bread was used like a fork and a spoon. I mean, it was used to sop up whatever it was you were eating. So you had to have bread. And so the man goes to his friend's house and he knocks on the door. He didn't knock just one time. He kept knocking. Now his friend, and most houses in that day and time, were just one-room houses. 
And everybody slept on their mats on the floor. Children laying around, mom laying around, dad laying around. You could not get up without having to step over someone. You couldn't light up a little light, you know, look at your iPhone without disturbing everybody in the room. And so this guy's knocking on the door, and his friend says, go away, we're all in bed, we're asleep, go away. And he keeps knocking. And the man finally gets up, and the text is very clear. It's not the friendship. It's not the friendship that triggers the result. It's the way the man was behaving at the door. It says because of his persistence. Now, I'm going to talk about persistence in a moment, but the word that's translated persistence here means something a little different than what you and I think of when we think of persistence. In the original language, instead of this English word persistence, it was probably better, in fact, the, the translation that Jill read said impudence. It, it's, uh, you could use the word impertinence. Ignoring convention or what is socially appropriate. A lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Insolence, audacity, impudence. Or, and all the lexicons say this, shamelessness. No shame. <laughs> Just shamelessness. Because of the shamelessness of this guy. Bam, bam, bam. The audacity. It's the middle of the night. That's what midnight means, by the way. Midnight. Middle of the night. He's pounding on the door. Because of his shamelessness, he gets up and gives him the bread. Now, most people pray. Even people who aren't Christians pray, but not like this. We each have a natural tendency to pray, especially when we're in trouble, right? C.S. Lewis, I, I put this quote out earlier in the week. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, on the other hand, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. So if you want to know what's in your cellar, surprise your cellar. Flip the light on real quick and you'll see what, what goes on. Well, that's what happens to you and me. That's when we know that you and I as human beings, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, religious, not religious, at the very core of our being, always in the basement, there's a heart prepared to pray. Bad diagnosis, we pray. Crisis, we pray. Great need is experienced in our life, we pray. And so at those moments that we pray, it's a very natural tendency to pray, but it's not this kind of praying. It's not shameless praying. It's desperate, but it's not shameless. Let me say, too, that no other religion on earth teaches their followers to pray like this. No Muslim is going to tell you to be audacious with Allah. They're not going to do that. Just barge in on Allah. They're not going to tell you to do that. But Jesus did teach us to pray that way. Notice, you're saying, well, why did he teach that? Notice in the Lord's Prayer how he starts it off. He doesn't say, our friend who art in heaven. He doesn't say, our judge who art in heaven. What does he say? Our father who art in heaven. And he, he shows us in this teaching that this 
shamefacedness, the shamelessness that we bring to our prayer life is based on our relationship to God as Father. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave, and those of you who are Bible scholars can probably finish out the rest of it. But as many as received him, to them he gave what? He gave forgiveness? Yeah, he did. That's not what it says. To as many as received him, to them he gave right standing before God? Yes, but that's not what it says. But as many as received him, to them he gave a future home in heaven? Well, yes, he does that, but that's not what it says. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. The right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So he wants you to pray in this bold, audacious, shameless manner because you are his child. He wants you to come to him like a child who has no shame or hesitation. I used to experience that. We have all kinds of examples of that around us. Years ago when I worked in an engineering firm, I'd be in a business meeting. We'd be working over some great important problem and the secretary would knock on the door and she'd say Don you have a call in line one and she'd have a grin on her face and I'd step out of the room this very important business meeting and I'd, I'd go to my office and I'd pick up the phone and I'd say hello and it was my five-year-old son and the conversation would go something like this dad can I stay up during nap time now? I'm old enough. I said, son, does your mother know you're on the phone? No. She's reading in the living room. I said, son, you need to go lie down now. At least a couple times a week. I don't want to say anything to embarrass anyone, but a couple times a week, we have a children's pastor whose kids show up at the office. Now, let me tell you what doesn't happen when they show up. They don't walk in to where Cindy sits at her desk, our receptionist, and they say, we'd like to see Pastor Mayno, please. <laughs> it's more like a herd of elephants running down the hallway. Ah, and they come in backpacks flying and everything going all over the place. It's great. It's great. And of course, dad's back there. Shy, y'all behave, be quiet, behave. You know, but kids are that way, aren't they? They're bold. They're audacious. They just come bouncing on in. Look at this picture. This is from uh, early 1960s. Some of y'all remember that picture. It's a very famous one. And that president, JFK, that was JFK Jr. playing under his desk. And he would go into the Oval Office, boldly into the Oval Office, and see his dad. And Caroline would go too, his sister. They have no sense of reservation. Why don't we pray like that? Because we're not thinking like a child yet. Sometimes we think to ourselves, my concern, this thing that's on my heart, is too small and insignificant. I'm not going to bother God with that. Children don't think about whether it's insignificant, do they? It can be big. It can be small from our perspective. But if it's on their mind, here they come. They're coming. 
Sometimes we think, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I've messed up too bad. I'm not worthy to come to God with my prayer request or my prayer need. Children don't act that way, do they? They don't think for a moment about whether they're worthy. It's dad. It's mom. They feel no shame. They're not being disrespectful. They feel no shame. It never crosses their mind that there's some social boundary that they're crossing. There's no hesitation. It's impulsive. Hey, Dad, come here. Mom. There's no reserve. They're aggressive about it. Come right on in. When you and I begin to pray the way Jesus is teaching here, we begin to think, this is my Father. I can go to Him anytime, anytime I want. And then we begin to pray the way Jesus taught, shamelessly, shamelessly. There's another way he taught us to pray. He taught us to pray persistently, persistently. In verse 7, the man in the house, it says, and from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. In verse 9, when Jesus is teaching the point of the parable, he says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now we can talk about persistence, because that's what he's talking about. Persistence. Persistence means that I don't pray about something one time and stop. I can't quit. When I pray one time and then stop, I'm treating prayer as if it was some kind of mechanical or magic formula. And then I look at what happens and say, well, that didn't work. That didn't happen. I've tried prayer. It doesn't work for me. And we just treat it like it's some kind of mechanical thing. So I'm not treating prayer the way he intends if I'm not persistent. If I'm not persistent, I'm not treating God the way he intends me to treat him. I'm treating him as only someone to go when I want something. I just pray one time. I want something. I pray one time, and I stop. I'm treating him just as some kind of giving thing. Persistence means to keep going to him in prayer. These verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are all in the present tense. When he says ask, he, if he was translating it in English in a way that we would capture the present tense, he would say, ask and keep on asking. Don't stop. Seek and keep on seeking. And don't stop. Knock and keep on knocking and don't stop. You know, when someone comes by and just knocks one time at the door, you're not even sure someone's at the door. Are you? Who knocks just one time? Bam! Bam! Honey, did something fall off the shelf? (laughs) Nobody knocks one time. They knock repeatedly. Boom, boom, boom. They knock, and then you wait a moment. You step back from the door so you're not scary, and then you do it again. Boom, 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 boom. And it's all present tense. That's what he's uh, teaching us at that moment. Now, there's something also here. It's very technical, but I, I need to point this out. It's in the imperative mood, meaning normally it's a command. But Jesus is not commanding us here. There's another form of imperative 
not an imperative command. It's called an imperative of condition. And what's being used here is a conditional statement. He said, if you ask, keep on asking, you're going to receive. It's a condition. When you're persistent in your asking, you'll receive. When you're persistent in your seeking, you'll find. When you're persistent in your knocking, the door is going to be open. And so it's a condition. Jesus is not issuing a command here. He's really issuing a form of invitation. And being persistent as you pray is like a trigger on a gun. And so he is waiting for you. He's waiting for me to be persistent in our praying. They prayed this way in the Old Testament. Uh, when the kids were growing up, we used to have a saying, because one of our Bible story times, I, we talked about Hannah in 1 Samuel. And uh, for some reason, I got it in my mind, this is one of those family things, you may not laugh at it, but I thought it was funny at the time. And uh, Hannah had no children. Hannah had no children. But she prayed. And when you read the story of Hannah, the word for prayer there is very similar to the way ask, seek, and knock are used here in the Hebrew. She was praying, and she kept praying, and she kept praying, and she kept praying, and she kept praying. She was relentless. Hannah prayed that way. Moses prayed like that. We studied a year ago in Exodus 33 when God said to the people who had been disobedient under Moses, he said, I'm going to keep my promise. I'll send my angels they will go with you into the promised land, but I am not going with you, God told Moses. And Moses said, hold everything. If you don't go with us, I'm not going. That is persistent. That is shameless praying in the Old Testament. Nehemiah prayed this way in Nehemiah 1. When he got the news about the people of God in Jerusalem, that the city was in ruins, that the people's hearts were in ruins, he says everything stopped for him. For at least four months, the man prayed and cried out to God. He was relentless. He was shameless. He was persistent in his praying. Abraham does this in Genesis. When he prays over Sodom and Gomorrah, and the angel tells him he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, oh, God, he said, I don't want to upset you. And I'm paraphrasing. He said, I don't want to upset you. I'm just a weak Little guy here, I don't know a whole lot, but will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? If there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you not restrain yourself? And God says, okay. If there are 50 righteous ones, I won't destroy it. Abraham says, I don't, I don't want to be shameless and impudent, but you know, if they just fall five short of that. If they don't quite make 50, and there's 45, this is in the text, and there's just 45 righteous there, will you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for 45 righteous people? And God says, I won't destroy it for 45. And this guy, Abraham, he's like Columbo. Well, one, one more thing. Will you do it for 40? And the conversation goes on to 30, the 20. And, and Abraham goes all the way down to 10 righteous people. He says, will you destroy the city if there's 10 righteous people there? And God says, no, I won't. Of course, ultimately, God removed the righteous people from Sodom and Gomorrah. But what a picture of persistence. What a picture of shamelessness as a son comes to his father. He is serious about you and I coming to him again and again. 
I want you to notice in uh, verse 7, the man in the house says, don't bother me. Did you catch that? Do not bother me. But then when we go to Luke 18, verses 5 and 6, when it's talking about the widow who nags the judge, look at what it says. Yet because this widow, Luke 18, verses 5 and 6, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. What is Jesus saying about the way you and I should approach him? Bother me. Bother me. Why does he want us to pray this way? It displays a serious faith and a desire to know him. When you and I are persistent, it displays a serious sense of neediness that only he can feel. When I keep going to God, it's because I realize he's the only one I can go to. There is nowhere else to go. There's no one else I can turn to. And when I keep coming back to him over and over again, I am exhibiting what Jesus calls someone who is poor in spirit. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit in the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't on about blessed are the poor. You can be poor and not be poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. A person who is poor in spirit has an essential poverty in their spirit. And when you have a sense of poverty in your spirit, you have an incredible sense of neediness that you carry with you always. And when you have that poverty of spirit, what are you going to do? You're going to keep going to the only one who can meet your need. And so when you and I are persistent, we keep going back to him over and over again. We're displaying that. David Green is the CEO of Hobby Lobby. And I don't know if you remember, but in the mid-1980s, there was an oil bust in Oklahoma and South Texas that affected family members that I had, and people were losing jobs and banks and businesses that were overextended, were collapsing, and he and his business, Hobby Lobby, based in Oklahoma City, they were in deep trouble. They were about to get foreclosed on. And Dave Green was raised with parents that prayed, and he saw his parents pray, and he heard them pray. But, but he said, up to this moment, he said, and, and this is the word he used, he said, this was a defining moment in my life. Some of y'all will remember that expression. He said, I, I prayed, but he said, I learned to pray differently then. And what he used to do is he would climb under his desk at work. CEO, major corporation, several times a day <laughs> with his door closed, would climb under his big desk and would cry out to God. There were employees that needed those paychecks. There were people whose lives and families depended on those jobs, and he was interceding, and he was crying out, not just for his sake, but for the sake of the people in his company. And to this day, the Green family attributes the fact that their company survived to the fact that they prayed. And they prayed persistently. Well, what is God wanting to do? What is God wanting to do through your prayers? What is he prepared to do through your praying that is not happening because you're not praying? You're not persistent. And he calls us to this persistence. Well, Jesus also wants us to pray, not just shamelessly and persistently, but thirdly, he wants us to pray expectantly. Expectantly. In verse 13, everything kind of changes. He, he's told us, 
what to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He's told us how to pray like a guy knocking at midnight on the door. But then he's telling us something very different in verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus never intended that you think that God is like a man who has to be awakened to come to the door. That was never the point of the story. He does not intend that you think in your mind that God is like a judge who must be harassed and nagged in order to respond to your prayers. The point of both parables is simple persistence and shamelessness. Without regard to all the things that you and I throw up as excuses why I can't pray and be heard. I'm his child and I can go to him. But verses 11 and 13 make it clear that God is a father. And just as a father, even an evil father, he says, knows how to give good gifts to his children. So the father knows how to, how, how to give good gifts. In Matthew 7, 11, he says it this way. How much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? See, if you and I are shameless and we act like children when we come to him in prayer, and we are persistent when our prayers are not answered, what do we do? How do we respond to that? When I'm praying about something and what I'm asking God to do doesn't happen, how do I respond to that situation, that scenario? You know, when you're a child, you naturally expect, it's just instinctive in children, that your parents are going to love you. You expect your parents to take care of you. You expect to be accepted. You, You exercise complete trust In them, when you have messed up and your dad got on your case or your mom got on your case, you didn't think two minutes later about running in and asking a question. You know you can just come and walk in. You don't have to worry about protocol. You don't have to worry about whether or not you deserve it. This is instinctive to children. Now, plenty of children are abused, and they unlearn that instinct. They unlearn that. And most of us growing up, we unlearn that behavior, that freedom, and that liberty. But growing in prayer means that you and I have to recover a childlike expectation of our Father. Growing up means becoming more like a child. Some of you are unhappy with God because you prayed for something and you didn't get it. Children don't act that way. Child runs in. Dad, can I have such and such? No, you can't. Ah, Okay, off they go. I mean, they're very different about it. They just expect that adults are a little different than children. They expect that adults are not going to do everything that they want. But they don't quit coming to dad. Well, dad didn't let me do something one time at age six, so that was it. Never going to ask dad for anything again. Children don't do that. So like children, we are to keep going to the father, and when we learn to pray like shameless, persistent, expectant children. We'll do that. We'll keep going to the Father over and over again. You say, well, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Because he only gives good gifts to his children. Imagine if you gave Aladdin's lamp to a five-year-old. Well, didn't give it to him. Who would do that? 
But there's three wishes packed into the Aladdin's lamp. And you found out your five-year-old got a hold of it. What would you do? I would run for cover. It's not going to be good. I'm going to get out of the universe. If a five-year-old gets a hold of a land's lamp with three wishes, I know that disaster is coming. Well, prayer is that way. When God says, come to me and pray and ask and seek and knock and keep on knocking, he's putting something extremely powerful in your hands. But it's not like Aladdin's lamp. It's like a relationship with your father. I mean, what if prayer was like Aladdin's lamp and God was a genie? What would, what would the world look like? i tell you what it looked like. Y'all be dead. Y'all would have killed each other off a long time ago. <laughs> the way some of the things we pray about. You know, oh God, send a lightning bolt, hit that house. I mean, you know, when you and I are upset, we're not going to pray like we should. We're going to be like children coming to God and asking for things that aren't good things. So we are not to pray and think that prayer is like Aladdin's lamp or that God is like a genie. You have to trust him like a child to be a father when you pray. And that when what I ask for doesn't happen, it's okay. My Father only does good things. I can rest in Him. But I'll be back in a few minutes. I'll be back in a few hours. I'll be back tomorrow. Because we got some other things I need to ask Him about and seek Him about. I got some doors that need to open in my life or my family, my church, my community. I'll be back. Jesus has taught us to pray shamelessly, persistently, expectantly. As we respond to him now, what is he saying to you about your prayer life? How does he want to grow you? Does he want to turn you into this rigid, hard, persistent person or does he want to unleash your heart and reduce your heart to the heart of a child and then seek him like that child every day the rest of your life let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes we're going to have a time of response and it's an opportunity for us it's part of our worship to take a moment and close our eyes and open our minds and our hearts to what God has said to us. And as part of our response time, we have pastors standing here at the front. And we encourage you to take advantage of these pastors here. They'll pray with you. They'll counsel with you. These steps up here we treat as kind of like an altar. And if you have something really that's burdening you, in your life or someone that you care about, you need to pray. Sometimes it's helpful just to physically get up out of your seat and to come and kneel at the front and pray and then go back to your seat. No holds barred. Anything is appropriate. We want you to respond to him and what God has said.
and how he is speaking to you. If you don't know Christ yet as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come talk and speak to one of our pastors. Coming to Christ and having all your sins forgiven is the beginning of a relationship with Almighty God that results in a new life. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so all your sins could be washed away. It is your sins that are destroying your life. It is, it is your sins that are keeping you from an intimate relationship with God that you would like to have. And through cross of Christ, through his cross, your sins can be forgiven. But you have to trust him actively. You have to come and lay your life to, before him, surrender the control of your life to him and say, Lord, save me. And he saves the person that abandons themselves to him. He rescues the person who says, I'm drowning. I need you, God. I need you, Jesus. And so as he leads you, how will you respond? These pastors to hear the counsel and pray with you. The steps are open. You can simply bow your head. When we stand and pray quietly right there, or you can sing that the words of the song capture your response. Our Father and our God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time we've had today to worship you and to explore what you have taught us about prayer. And help us, Father, teach us, remind us, like a child busting into their their father's office like a child coming and petitioning their mom for some favor. May we become like children, your children, as we pray this year. Guide us as we respond to you now. We welcome you here. In Jesus' name, I pray.